like to mention, I am from Northview Church in Abbotsford, one of the churches that came together to help plant your congregation. Uh, so it's really good. Whenever I've come here to be in a room full of people who love to sing together, uh, to worship together, to praise God together. Uh, and it's really encouraging for me to see uh, what it is that God is doing in and through his uh, people who gather here at Tri-City Church. Uh, in addition to the campus that I'm located at as part of my uh, training program that I'm in, we as Immerse students, as the program I'm in, also run our evening service at our campus. Uh, and there are about 15 to 30 people who attend that service in a room about this size. So that means that to come into a very full room here is always a delightful and encouraging change of pace. Uh, I'm very thankful for those 15 to 30 people, but it's also very quiet to preach into an echoey room. So I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, we are in Luke 19, looking at the story of Zacchaeus. So if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, I'll have the scriptures up on the screen that I'm reading as well, so you will still be able to follow along. Uh, one of the times I can distinctly remember feeling lost was in my later teenage, early, kind of young adult years. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story that some of you may think is a little bit pathetic, uh, is maybe a, a conundrum you would not find yourself in, because as you're going to see, navigation via instinct is not a strength of mine. But I trust that as I tell you my experience of being lost, it will remind you of similar experiences you have had in some sense. So have mercy on me. I don't need navigational advice. I manage these situations much better now than I did then. Uh, but that time where I remember really feeling lost was one of the very first times I drove alone in the United States. I had been down lots of times in my childhood, but it was always someone else driving, a parent, a friend, whatever that might be. This particular time I went down, was spending some time with some friends. I was the only one who was leaving early to come back up to Canada. And so I thought, hey, you know what? Uh, I don't have cell service. I can't navigate. I didn't think to download an app with a map ahead of time. But it, how hard is it to head north? You know, if I get on the right road, I'll find a border crossing eventually, and I will get back to the country that I came from. And so I set out. It was evening when I left. It was dim and getting darker. Uh, but I had a good amount of confidence that, of course, I could find my way north and eventually traverse my way east or west if I needed to, to find the nearest border crossing that I crossed to come down. Some of that should be in my memory somewhere. But as I was driving, and it got later and later, I very quickly realized that I was pretty sure the border crossing I was headed to was one that is not open all night. It closes at some point, and again, not having cell service, I couldn't figure out when that point actually was. So I had to kind of do the mental calculus, not really knowing where I am, not knowing how far away this crossing is. Am I going to make it before it closes? Or am I going to have to try and find a new one when it's really dark and I really don't know where I'm going? So I did kind of the mental math, made my best estimate, and said, I'm going to try and switch over to the other one that I know is open 24-7. But as soon as I stopped only trying to head north and added a little bit of eastward direction into my mental navigation, I got lost very quickly. Uh, it was a situation that kind of began to pile up. It was getting dark. I was driving an old truck with bad headlights, driving through a stretch where there was just field after field that looked exactly the same. No street lights, no signage, nothing to tell me if I was on the right track. And I knew, because I didn't have cell service, if I actually came to the point where any last vestiges of optimism were gone and I realized I desperately needed someone's help, there was nothing I was going to be able to do to reach out 
for that help. Didn't have cell service, was in a very remote rural area, or so it felt. But that sense of lostness brought with it very quickly a sense of helplessness. If someone is going to help me in this moment when I need it, they are going to have to seek me out and save me. There's nothing I'm going to be able to do to save myself. And maybe this is where my story meets your life. We all encounter those times of helplessness at some point. We are all familiar with what it is like to feel lost at some level. It's one of the images the scriptures employ to talk about our spiritual condition apart from Jesus, that we are lost and need to be found. And so whether you are currently in a time of your life where you feel lost, whether you have felt that before, maybe someone in your life around you is in that predicament, this story today, the story of Zacchaeus, maybe a familiar one, but it speaks a good message to people who are lost and people who love those who are lost because it tells us that it is Jesus who seeks and saves the lost. That's the one point that Jesus makes at the end of this story, so that's the one point I'll be making with my sermon, that Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And so to structure my sermon, I've basically chopped that idea in half, and we're going to look first at how Jesus seeks the lost, and then how Jesus saves the lost and what that means. So first, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7 as we see how it is that Jesus seeks the lost. Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, the crowds, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now maybe that's a familiar story for you. Maybe it's one you've heard since childhood. Maybe that's the first time you've ever heard that story. But there are things in the text, no matter how familiar you are with it, that you may miss if you skim over it and think, ah, this is pretty straightforward. I understand everything Luke means in my first initial reading of it. And the first thing we need to slow down and consider more carefully is how Luke introduces to us the character Zacchaeus. Because there's some stuff going on in Zacchaeus' life and his circumstance that is probably lost on us. I know it was lost on me for years before I stopped and considered what some of the details in the text were indicating. So first, what does Luke say? Luke says Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Now, that might not mean much to you. That's not a term that's used in lots of other places in the Bible. We, we hear about tax collectors, but never another chief tax collector. So to understand what that means, we ought to consider that title in light of the larger political economic system that Zacchaeus operated in, that Luke was writing about. So in that day, uh, Rome was the empire who had conquered Israel. Israel was the people to whom Jesus was sent. Jesus was an Israelite. But the Roman Empire had conquered them and thus had the ability and the power to tax the Jewish people. And so they did. And the way that this taxation happened is a little different than the way that Canada taxes us. There's no net file system, no CRA agents sending ominous emails and things like that. 
The, the way in which Rome taxed the people it conquered was through physical tax booths where you'd have tax collectors get a contract with the empire to say, hey, we will collect these taxes on your behalf, Rome. And that's how they did it. They used tax collectors to do it. That seems pretty straightforward, right? Rome had these basic quotas that had to be hit that tax collectors had to deliver on. But there was very little instruction around how these tax collectors were actually supposed to make a living from doing this. All that Rome required was that their quotas be met. And so what tax collectors felt free to do, because they collected taxes with the authority of Rome behind them, was to require above and beyond what the Roman taxes actually were. And that above and beyond, they took and put in their own pockets. That's how they made their money. So you can imagine the situation uh, being one where tax collectors are not the most popular people. They are the agents of the hated empire who are in charge of enforcing the financial repercussions of being a conquered nation who got wealthy by taking more than what they were actually required to take. And Zacchaeus wasn't just any tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. That means he has risen up a few levels and he is now a tax collector who oversees other tax collectors. So when they take extra to pay their own bills to make themselves wealthy, they would have to take even more because they know Zacchaeus is going to collect from them and skim off the top of everything they took before he gives it all over to the Roman Empire. It's a pyramid scheme that works because it's got the imperial power behind it. Zacchaeus was free to do this, and boy, did he do it. And we're told in the text that he made himself rich as he did this thing. He lived a life of luxury because of the oppression of the Jewish people. And if that isn't enough to make him unpopular, there's something significant about his actual name, Zacchaeus, that indicates there's an additional level of unpopularity going on. And it's because Zacchaeus is a Greek version of a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name is Zakai. There's an Old Testament character or two that has that name. And what that means is that Zacchaeus was a Jewish man getting wealthy off of the oppression of his family, his brothers and sisters, his parents, his neighbors, his rabbi. Zacchaeus was a man who benefited from the subjugation of his people. He participated in it. He was not a popular guy. So all of the response of the crowds as the story unfolds should make a little bit more sense when we set it up in this way. There are many layers to the ways in which Zacchaeus was unpopular. He benefited from, he participated in, and he had a vested interest in the ongoing opposition of his people. Uh, so Luke's readers would have felt that. We have a harder time feeling that because we can't think of many people in our present situation that have those layers upon layers of opposition to the people of God. That's a harder parallel, right? We don't have an empire tax collecting kind of dynamic like they did. But if you were to think, what is someone who exhibits some of those layers of opposition? You might think of someone like a secular university professor who has given themselves in their professional life to researching and writing against Christian organizations, Someone who makes money by writing against people who are trying to follow Jesus. But even that doesn't have the same layer of betrayal that Zacchaeus' situation has. 
Maybe if they were once a Christian and now they've walked away from their faith. But again, we don't have an easy contemporary equivalent. What we need to know, though, is that Zacchaeus was hated among all of the people that the Israelites hated. He was outside of the community, and he was far outside of the community. And this combination of factors, these layers of reasons, makes the way that this story unfolds absolutely unfathomable to the crowds around Jesus. It's interesting to think about how the story unfolds, though. Zacchaeus was wealthy. He had riches. He had stuff. He was living luxuriously. And yet, for some reason, Luke doesn't tell us what the reason is. He had a desire to see Jesus. See, we don't know if that's a genuine spiritual hunger, that he knew there was something wrong that he wanted to get. We don't know if he's just curious because Jesus did miracles or because he was a great teacher. Luke doesn't tell us. All that he tells us is that that was going to be hard for Zacchaeus to do because he was small. But Zacchaeus is uh, committed, and there's a couple of things in the story that illustrate just how committed he was to being able to see Jesus. And the first is less obvious, it's a little more subtle, and it's the fact that he went forth in the midst of these crowds in the first place. Right? If we think about all those layers of being a tax collector for Rome, a Jewish man who was tax collecting for Rome, and we hold that up against the nature of the crowds which followed Jesus. These were people who thought Jesus was their military deliverer, many of them. They saw him as the one that they hoped would overthrow the Roman Empire. There's a certain nationalistic zeal to the crowds which followed Jesus. And so for this chief tax collector to risk his life, perhaps, to walk in the midst of this crowd to see Jesus for whatever reason shows just how committed he is to just catching a glimpse of this guy who he's heard about. The, the second thing that indicates the strength of his desire is maybe the part of the story we're more familiar with, that he undignified himself by climbing a tree. That's not something that a professional Jewish man does. That's something that children do, that you grow out of very quickly. Uh, you see, we actually appreciate a bit of that today. If you were doing a tour of the parliament buildings in Ottawa, you came outside and it was lunch break and you saw your local MP in a suit and tie go climb a tree. You might have some questions as to why he's acting in this inappropriate way. Maybe questions that would linger in your mind the next time you go and cast a ballot. Right? It communicates something about the person. If they're willing to do something we associate with a child. And yet Zacchaeus was willing to risk that public perception. So strong was his desire to see Jesus. That's what he wanted, to see him. But as the story unfolds, as Luke tells us in verse 5, Zacchaeus climbed the tree to see Jesus, but as Jesus walked by, he is the one who saw Zacchaeus. And not just saw in terms of observed a guy in a tree, that's strange, but he saw Zacchaeus and addressed him by name. He, he saw Zacchaeus for the person before him, he, he saw not just a dirty chief tax collector, but Zacchaeus, the man who wanted to see him for some reason. And in case that's not uh, significant enough for him to address him by name, to know him at that personal level, he also, Jesus does something that uh, a lot of the commentators I was reading said is was borderline rude in that day. He invites himself over for dinner. The, the value put on generosity was really high in that day. You were supposed to be the kind of person who would open your home to people. But for you to invite yourself over 
would have been culturally surprising. That's not, maybe you have a really open relationship with your neighbors, people kind of come and go, and you have that kind of understanding. Zacchaeus is a guy who did not know Jesus personally. And so no one dared, would have presumed upon someone's hospitality. But Jesus has a very clear purpose for why he first sees and addresses and invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house. Zacchaeus is one whom he is seeking. And the way the whole story is told leads to a point where the crowds uh, have some questions about Jesus in light of how he's treating this Zacchaeus. Right, they respond probably like my siblings would have responded during my grumpy teenage years if you said something nice about me to them. Ah, isn't Levi so patient and great as he helps with the kids at church? And they would have been like, well, if you saw how angry he was with me when I took his toast out of the toaster this morning, you would know a little bit better than to be kind and nice to him. This is the attitude the crowds have towards Jesus because he receives Zacchaeus as he does. The crowds see a simple traitor and exploiter, and they hate him. Jesus sees a lost man whom he is seeking. And as we consider how it is that Jesus seeks and who it is that Jesus seeks, there's a lesson for us to be learned from the attitude of the crowds. Because I think, honestly, if we were to evaluate our own hearts, there are times where we would identify an an ugly tendency to see people like the crowds saw Zacchaeus. Maybe it's people too lost to be saved. Or in more extreme circumstances, people whom we don't really want to see saved, if we're honest. And I don't know who that is for you. There's lots of different reasons why we might have that kind of hard-heartedness towards another person. Maybe it's a neighbor you've started to talk about your Christian faith with, who's been very clear about how they are disgusted by Christians whom they see in the world, the way that Christians think and live. Maybe it's a, a coworker that you've connected with, and what they've done is they've mocked the ways in which you've tried to live a consistent Christian life in your workplace. Perhaps classmates or uh, peers at school who know you're a Christian and who think you're dumb because of it. Maybe even a public figure. There's someone who says things about the Christian faith to the watching world that you look at and say, if I was honest with my own heart towards that person, I don't see them as lost, but I see them as hopeless, as someone I would rather Jesus did not save. Now, that's an instinct you have to be very honest with yourself in order to arrive at that conclusion, because it's not a comfortable place to be. We we want to be the kind of people who are soft-hearted to the lost, but there are many who are like Zacchaeus for us people for whom it is hard for us to have soft hearts towards because of the various ways maybe they speak against, they benefit from speaking against the Christian faith. That though is not an option for us. We, we cannot be people who remain in that kind of hard heartedness. Where does that hard heartedness come from? I think for a lot of us, there may be a lot of different reasons past hurt Maybe they've said things about us in particular. They've maligned or said something unfair. But honestly, I think a lot of it goes deeper than that. And it's that we tend to forget that we were once lost. We forget what it took for us to not be lost, but instead to have been found by Jesus. See, the Bible talks in a lot of different ways. uses a lot of different metaphors and word pictures to talk about the state of a person who does not know Jesus. 
In our text, Jesus talks about people being lost. In John chapter 9, there's this talk about being blind. But one of the, maybe the most pointed pictures comes to us in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. See, the scriptures say, apart from God's work, we are all dead. We are all blind. We are all lost. Those are all images which are getting at that same reality, that we cannot save ourselves. And none of you, if you know Jesus as your Savior, did save yourself. See, what dead people need is life to be brought back to them. What blind people need is their sight to be restored. What lost people with no cell service need is someone to come and find and intervene, to show them the way they are trying to go. And this is what has happened for us in Jesus. This is what God has done for you and for me. So there is no person more lost than you were ever lost. Those whom Jesus seeks, he saves. And he seeks all kinds of unexpected people. Uh, that, that example I described earlier of the kind of person in the present who has those many layers of opposition to the Christian faith. That wasn't a profile I invented or came up with. That's how a woman named Rosaria Butterfield described her own life before she was saved. She was a lesbian activist professor who specialized in queer theory, researching articles, writing against Christian organizations. That's how she describes her life before she came to know Jesus. But God sought her out. And one of the ways he did it was actually through this article that she was researching and writing. She examined the scriptures, where the source material was for these people whom she hated. That was one of the ways God sought her out and drew her to himself. See, there is no person who is too lost to be found. We know that to be true of ourselves. We were once lost and now have been found, and we ought to continue to ask God to soften our hearts by reminding us of the truth of the gospel, such that even those people whom we are tempted to be hard-hearted towards today are people who, with whom we can see like Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Because Jesus seeks the lost. But that's just the first part of the story. This is just the first way in which Jesus gets into Zacchaeus' life so that he can transform him. Because the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus seeks people who are lost, but those he seeks, he saves. So we're going to see in verses 5 to 10 how it is that Jesus saves the lost as we dip back into the text that I first read for those first two verses. So Luke 19, beginning in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And one day the crowd saw it. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, these five verses cover a lot of spiritual ground very quickly. 
So we're just going to take a little bit of time to reflect on some of the things that Luke implies in the text, especially through the way Jesus summarizes the story at the end. See, see the mechanics of the story are very simple. Jesus addresses Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus receives him. The crowds have their say. Zacchaeus responds in a remarkable way. And Jesus summarizes at the end all that has actually happened on the inner life of Zacchaeus, making a statement about his own mission. And so what we see first is that Zacchaeus, through this simple story, experienced a spiritual transformation. And the, way that I, uh, the reason that I say that is because of how Jesus addresses Zacchaeus at the end in verse chapter 9. Right? He calls him a son of Abraham. And that term has a meaning in the Old Testament. It refers to all of those who descended from the human man, Abraham. His whole family tree eventually became the nation of Israel as it grew and grew through the generations. So at one level, to be a son of Abraham is simply to be Jewish, which Zacchaeus was. But he's saying something more than that. In the New Testament, this term carries with it an additional level of meaning. Paul explains it to us in Galatians 3, verse 7. Here's how he says someone becomes a son of Abraham, how someone is marked as a son of Abraham. Know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So by calling Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, what Jesus is saying is that his response to Jesus' presence in his life comes from a heart of faith. Everything that he's going to do, the generosity with which he's going to respond is animated by a heart of faith, a heart that is soft to who Jesus is, a heart that caused him to receive Jesus with great joy. See, Zacchaeus was transformed from the inside out. He, he didn't earn this commendation from Jesus. He didn't earn it by his generosity. He didn't earn it by receiving him with joy, but he received it as a free gift. Because this is what it is like to be saved by Jesus who seeks. It is simply to receive the free gift which he extends. And the reason that I'm talking about this as a gift is because of where this story fits in the larger account of Luke's gospel. See, if we were to only have these 10 verses, we might think that Jesus was making light of Zacchaeus' past life of sin and evil and wickedness. Because it was evil to continue to oppress the Jewish people. It was bad to be greedy and to accumulate wealth off of the oppression of your brothers and sisters and your mother and your father and your friends. It was bad. And so if we only have this story, we may think Jesus is, is making light of that, saying it's all washed away, it's all good, without anything happening. Jesus can just say it's gone. But Luke 19 is to be read in light of the larger story. See, even chapter 1, or verse 1 of Luke 19 indicates that to us. Because what does it say? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He didn't plan to stay in Jericho for years because he was on his way somewhere. And in the next chapters of, of Luke's gospel, we see where it is Jesus was heading and why it is he was heading there. See, Jesus was heading through Jericho to arrive at Jerusalem. And in particular, to arrive in Jerusalem during the week of Passover. And to be there in that place at that time for one specific purpose. To die for sinners like Zacchaeus. See, in his death, Jesus told the truth about the awfulness of Zacchaeus' sin. 
He said it is, it is true and it is bad and it makes you guilty that you have opposed God and his people through the role you played in Rome's taxation system. But in my death, Zacchaeus, I am bearing upon myself the penalty that even sin that egregious deserves. So Jesus can offer forgiveness freely because sin has been dealt with in his death. That is what it means that Zacchaeus can simply receive Jesus with joy out of a heart of faith and be forgiven and to be said to be saved because of what Jesus would go on to do. See, salvation is free from God, just like a tree does not charge for its shade or a river for its cold water or the sun for its warm rays. Salvation is a free gift to be received by the soft heart of faith at no cost to itself. And so for those of you in this room who would say you are presently in a state of spiritual lostness, you do not know Jesus to be the one who seeks and saves. This story proclaims good news to you. Jesus offers salvation freely. Those he seeks, he saves, and all they have to do is receive him with faith. And yes, he's going to tell you that your sin is serious, that it is a problem which needs resolving, but he's also going to proclaim to you the good news that he is the one who has solved it. So maybe today is the day where you need to respond in this way. Maybe you've even been around church for a long time. You've done Christian things. You sing the songs. You like to listen to the Bible being taught, but you've never actually received Jesus by faith and the forgiveness which he brings. Maybe today is the day you can be found because Jesus seeks and saves. See, this is one of the things that's proclaimed to us in this text, that salvation is free because Jesus seeks and saves. But the other thing is is that it prompts a response, which is the the middle section of the passage that I read from verses 5 to 10. The the story isn't only about uh, Zacchaeus' response to Jesus in in joy and Jesus' articulation of what has happened. He's become a son of Abraham. There is also a response on Zacchaeus' part. And it's a pretty uh, total response. Zacchaeus, after having received Jesus, having this transformation because of his experience of Christ, he responds in two ways, with generosity and with justice. He says, "I'm, I'm going to take half of what I have and give it to the poor. The other half of what I have, notice that's two halves, that's everything. The other half of what I have, I'm going to use to repay fourfold everyone I have taken anything from. And he had taken much from many people. Half of what he had would actually not be enough to deliver on that. Any money he continued to take in, he would also be using to repay fourfold. And this is just the voluntary choice of his heart in light of what he has from Jesus. And I think Luke intends us to read this story as a contrast to a a slightly earlier story from Luke chapter 18. You may remember from a couple weeks ago, the story of the rich young ruler. I'll read it in case you weren't here to recap. Luke 18, verses 18 to 25. A ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. 
Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Note the opposites between this story and Zacchaeus's. See, this man's wealth was what kept him from coming to Jesus in the first place. Jesus saw into his heart knew the obedience that he had practiced, but saw an idol that remained that he knew this man would not let go of. And it caused him to go away sad. Zacchaeus's experience is the opposite. He, he receives Jesus with great joy, joy instead of sadness. And it leads him to volunteer all that he has in light of what he has now received in Christ. See, what happens when you receive Jesus and the gift of salvation that he gives is that everything you have and everything that you are is seen in a different light now. Your life needs to respond to this which you have been given. Right? And Zacchaeus responds in two ways, I mentioned, right? Generosity. I'm going to give to the poor from what I have. I have accumulated much. I'm going to use it generously. But also his principle of justice is one that comes from the Old Testament, this idea of repaying someone fourfold for what you've done against them. Exodus 22 verse 1, for example, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. The five oxen, probably because those were bigger animals, more valuable, it mattered more when he stole one of those. But the principle is already seen in the Old Testament. And so that means Zacchaeus is responding with God's own justice to the injustice he had done. He is going to use everything that he has in those two ways because of what he has now received in Christ. Because the only way you're going to be willing to part with something that is very precious to you is if you receive something new and better. See, why do you donate clothes to the thrift store? Because you got better clothes now. Why is it that when uh, my wife and I, a couple years ago, we had a car that broke down? We were a single car family, uh, and so we had to borrow a work van from my dad for a couple of months. It was one of those big white work vans, two seats, no windows, lots of storage in the back, not the kind of vehicle you want to be known for driving. Uh, but it was okay at the time. Gas was only like 70 cents a liter. We were in that kind of stage of things. So it worked for us for a while, but eventually it came time to get a new car. And so we did our research, we, we bought a car. If you knew us in that time, you knew that we had bought a new vehicle, but then a week later you saw us driving the van around town. What would you assume we thought about this new car that we had bought? It was no good. It's worse than this weird van that we have to drive, right? When you have something good that replaces what came before, you let go of that other stuff because you see it in light of what you have now, this is the basic pattern of life that Zacchaeus models for every single Christian. So there are questions that we ought to ask ourselves in light of it. How have you responded to the salvation that Jesus offers? We can look at it in the two ways. What does your generosity look like? 
Right? In, in Jesus, Zacchaeus knew that he had everything he had ever longed for. He had an eternal, secure inheritance as a child of Abraham through faith in Jesus. And so he was able to see what he had and see how he could steward it according to the new family business he had been grafted into. So what is it that you have? And how is it that God is asking you to use it? We can all answer that question in a thousand different ways. The space where you live, be it a house, a townhouse, apartment, basement suite, how is God asking you, in light of what you have received in Jesus, to use the space to serve others? Maybe that looks like inviting a family over that you know would really benefit from a meal they don't have to pay for and they don't have to cook themselves. It can be as simple and straightforward as that. But there's no upper limit, really. Maybe God is calling you to open your house to foster a child or, or to adopt, perhaps. What would it look like for you to consider what you have in light of what you've received in Jesus and to say, God, what does generosity look like for me in this situation? Because I have what I have because you have been to me who you have been to me. What does generosity look like for you? But Zacchaeus also responds with justice, as we said. Right? He, he looked at his past sin in light of the forgiveness he had received, and he saw that it was not good for him to leave those things unresolved. Not because he still bore the guilt of those things, but because in light of the new life he had in Christ now, he knew it was out of line with that new life to leave things unresolved from the past. So where do you need to bring justice in your own relationships, maybe? A past business partner whom you took advantage of a little bit, did some rounding in your favor or backed out of a deal that cost him for your own benefit. What would it look like for you to go and make that wrong right? Maybe it's someone whom you used to make fun of behind their back, a classmate at school. You used to pass on gossip about them. You didn't know if it was true or not, but you passed it on anyways when they weren't around. What would it look like for you to go and bring God's justice to bear on that situation? See, I don't know your scenarios. It would be worthwhile for you to think on your drive home about what generosity and justice look like for you, not to earn anything from God, but because of what you've already received from Jesus who sought and saved you. See, this is the good news that this text proclaims. First to the lost, that there is one who seeks and who saves. But also to those who have been saved, that you can actually enjoy freedom from the past things which held you captive. You don't have to be enslaved by your idols any longer. You can now use them for good in God's world. You don't have to continue to feel the lingering effects of your past sin. You can go resolve those things and walk in the freedom that is yours in Jesus. This is what it means to be sought and saved by Christ. And that is good news for all of us, both those who are lost and those who have been found. So I'm going to pray for us to that end, uh, and then we're going to respond in a couple of ways. So let's pray together in light of what God has said to us in Luke 19. Father, you are so kind to us in so many ways. Uh, the chief example of, of your kindness, though, has been and always will be that you sent your son to die for us, to pay the penalty that our sin deserved, to bear it upon himself, and to give us instead life that can only be found in you. And so, Father, in light of that, we, we ask for those who are lost that we would be soft-hearted to them, 
that we would present Jesus as the one who can find and save them. Give us soft hearts for the people around us. And Father, for us who, who have known the finding work of Jesus, who have been saved, I ask that we would see all of our lives in light of what you have done and respond as you lead us. We pray these things in Jesus' name by the Spirit's power. Amen.